like to begin by referencing some reading that I've been doing lately. Quite a bit of research that went into uh, the reading that I was, the research by the author uh, that I'd like to share some of that with you. And it, in that, in these books, it describes the state of our world today. And I think it's interesting to note that some of the things that you're going to hear me list here at the beginning predate COVID. So the author was, one of the books was finishing this right before COVID was hitting, makes reference of its appearance towards the end of the book, but most of this research predates COVID. And the research is conducted by mostly non-religious people. Uh, some had religious orientation or reasons for conducting their research, but much of this was conducted uh, outside of a religious realm. What they found and what I'll give to you are descriptions of what they're finding as common trends among people in the world today. Things like an excessive self-interest, narcissism, isolation and loneliness, a rise in rudeness, suspicion and loss of trust, loss of truth, loss of morality, the state of our marriages, the state of the family. Uh, one author in particular said sex has reached a point now where it's just considered a leisure time activity. There's abuse that's on the rise. There's neglect. People are dealing with trauma, with drug use, with violence and psychological issues. There's a sense of meaningless and hopelessness. There's a rise in greed, excessive wealth and power for a few, and poverty for many. No, no universals, no absolutes, no God in the picture. A rise in envy and a focus on what we don't have. And I could keep going from there. Now again, these are not people who have a, a religious interest. They're simply documenting what they're finding as habits and conduct of the culture and this is both European culture, American culture, and it expands from there. What I just read to you has a lot of similarities to 2 Timothy 3.1, which you know well. And that, that's, that particular scripture begins with, we live, are there perilous times that are coming? And begins to describe what will be seen. And those things we are seeing. Every one of these things that I've mentioned to you are addressed in the Bible. And many of the solutions that are needed are found in Scripture. One other quote from one of the other books. This one is called The Spirit Level by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. Their quote goes as follows. It is a remarkable paradox that at the pinnacle of a human material and technical achievement, we find ourselves anxiety-ridden, prone to depression, worried about how others see us, unsure of our friendships, driven to consume and with little or no community life. Now, I don't wish to overdo this. This is just laying the groundwork for where we're going. Uh, and my purpose is not to dwell on these ills or these issues, but simply to cite in an abbreviated fashion what researchers are seeing all around us. And it helps to illustrate a very important point and the topic of the message today that we are not of this world. 
We are not of this world. Our beliefs regarding our spiritual citizenship, living as a light in the world, voting in politics, conscientious objection to military service, jury duty, preaching the gospel, the holy days versus the holidays, the Sabbath, all have at a core level uh, kind of an undercurrent or the basis foundation for this understanding that we are not of the world. We are to be different and noticeably so. We are out of step with the world around us spiritually, not physically. And there is a big difference between being strange and being a stranger. So my purpose today is just simply to revisit the important core belief of the Church of God, and that exceeds modern history. This goes throughout the Church of God through history that we are not of this world. So first, to begin with, first important point, a significant reason why we are not of this world is that we understand that Satan is the ruler of this world. You know from many other sermons that you've heard before that there's just simply uh, disbelief that there is a devil uh, in the world today. Of course, they don't believe there's a God either, but they don't believe there's a devil, and they certainly don't understand his role. So I'd like to take a look at several passages that simply make this point. First, in Matthew 4. Matthew 4, we'll look at verses 8 through 9. We're breaking into the section of Scripture about the temptation of Christ. Matthew 4 and verse 8 says, Again, the devil took him up into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, if we look at what's going on here, Christ is not debating with Satan over whether he can deliver this or not. He doesn't argue that it's not Satan's to give. In fact, let me quote from Clark's commentary, uh, adds a little bit of clarity here. He said, it's as if he said, the whole of this land is now under my government. And this is Satan speaking. The whole of this land is now under my government. Do me homage for it, and I will deliver it into your hand. So again, it's not an argument over whether it's his to offer. It's an issue of trying to get Christ to forfeit something far greater for the immediacy of you can have it now. We know that Christ came, gave his life, lived a perfect life, and his sinless sacrifice set him up to take Satan's thrown away from him at an appointed time. I'll just reference for you. You can choose to turn there if you wish, but it's a brief passage in Revelation eleven fifteen. This is mentioning the appointed time where he will step in and take up the throne. Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, "The kingdoms of this world." have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Back when we kept the fall festivals and we went through the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles, these all looked to the time 
when Satan will be deposed from his rule over this earth and Christ will become the king over this earth and all people and will be the king of kings and lord of lords. Let's take a look at three other proofs of this fact that Satan is the god, small g here. Satan is the god, small g, of the world. And each of these are from the testimony of Christ himself. First of all, in John 16. John 16, and we'll start in verse 7. John 16 and verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send it to you. Let's jump down to verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the way that's worded there is, is not as clear as it could be. Vincent's word study says, is judged, or hath, has rightly, rightly stated, has been judged. And the Weymouth translation, I think, puts it in a, in a clearer fashion. Because the prince of this world is under sentence. So we know it's just a matter of time. The Day of Atonement pictures this. Just a matter of time before he will be removed and Christ will be the king of kings and the world will become the kingdom of God. So we know that he is, the ruler of this world is under sentence. Second passage in John 14, back a few chapters. And again, this is Christ speaking as well. John 14, and we'll start in verse 22. John 14 and verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I was present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. The Bible in basic English and also the contemporary English version state that last verse in verse 30 this way. After this, I will not say much to you because the ruler of this world comes and he has no power over me. So his time is limited. He has no power over Christ. Christ has, is in waiting to come and take the throne back. One other passage in John 12, back a few more chapters. 
John 12, and we will start in verse 27. Again, this is Christ speaking. And my soul is troubled, verse 27, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And let's drop down to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. So we see in numerous passages as we've gone through that Christ identifies the current God, small g, of this world. It is Satan the devil. He's the ruler and the prince of this world. He is the driving force of this world now, but he is under sentence and he will be dethroned. Let's continue with a few more passages from the apostles. So following Christ's death, uh, the, the apostles understood what Christ had said here, that it continued to be an issue and that Satan's reign continue on. So we'll take a look at three places where Paul and John, many years after Christ's death, are still supporting this belief. Let's start first in 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's writing his letters to the Corinthians about 25 years, approximately 25 years after Christ's death and resurrection. And we see in, in his writing here to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry and we have received mercy, we do not faint. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor adulterating the word of God, but by the revelation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But also if our gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those being lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving ones, so that the light of this glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn on them. This is the reason that the world is as it is. The God of this world is responsible for blinding. We understand it's a temporary matter that all individuals that have ever existed will have an opportunity. For the moment, though, the God of this world has blinded the majority. In another passage by John, First uh, John 5 and verse 19. First John 5 and verse 19. He's writing about 60 years after Christ's resurrection. <clears throat> and we see in First John 5 and verse 19, we know that we are of God and all the world lies in evil. Again, I'd like to read a couple other translations to help bring out what this statement, all the world lies in evil, is really saying. Bible in basic English says it this way. <clears throat> we are certain that we are of God, but all the world is in the power of the evil one. The contemporary English version. We are certain that we come from God and that the rest of the world is under the power of the devil. And then you've got numerous translations, the NAS, the NAB, the NIV, the NRSV, who say under the sway 
of the wicked one. So again, there's incredible authority that this individual is given over this world for now. Next, in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, Paul is writing again about 30 years after Christ's resurrection. He's writing to the Ephesians and he's reminding them that Satan is the one who's responsible for setting attitudes, ways of thinking, reasoning, and acting. So we see in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And he has made you alive who were once dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our way of life in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the thoughts, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." We know that he is responsible for steering the desires of the flesh and mind and having an effect on this world. Barnes has this to say uh, in regards to that statement that he's the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. He clearly identifies, as we understand, this is Satan the devil. He is also called the god of this world. Uh, The rulers of the darkness of this world, that is, the rulers of the dark world, he is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. All these names are given him for the influence or power which he has over men of this world because the great mass of men have been under his control and subject to his will. So it's been established by Christ himself by Paul, by John, by others, that Satan is the god of this world. For now, he's under sentence. Christ will replace him at his return. Uh, The present world is under his control. It's under his sway and under his power, and it is for this reason that we are not of this world. And we can see from these passages, just these that we've covered so far, the reason that there is caution. Another point, second point, it's already been alluded to in what we've covered already, but the world is not something that Christ and his are of. The world is not something that Christ and his are of. The world and Christ, excuse me, the world and Christ are at cross purposes to one another. Let's read a passage in John 1. John 1, and we'll begin in verse 1. Well-known kindred passage to Genesis 1. John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness apprehended it not. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. 
there was the true light, even the light which lights every man coming into the world. In verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. He predated the world. Uh, he predated its current ruler. He created the world. He created the current ruler of this world. And he came to live and be in the world. And the world knew him not. And if we read one more verse, it even says his own did not know him. Now every Passover, we go over the account of the last Passover and Christ's talk with his disciples. What kind of importance can we place on that discussion that we're privy to and are able to read? Forty times during that evening's talk, Christ referred to the world. It was an important issue for him towards the end of his physical life. Let's start in a few passages in John, reading some of these. We'll begin in John 13. John 13. Starting in verse 1. And before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, when he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. So we've reached a point where he's now ready to depart this world and to be with the Father, and he leaves behind his own in the world. Let's jump ahead a chapter to chapter 14. We've read this earlier, but I'll include it in the flow here. So John 14 and verse 21. John 14 and verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Now, there's a distinction made here that some would be allowed to see clearly and others would not, those, as he uses the term, those of the world. We'll jump ahead now to John 15, starting in verse 18. And there's a greater dis distinction made here. Verse 18 of John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the distinction between being in and of. Now the most powerful statement or powerful part of that evening was at the end. And Christ ended that evening with a conversation with his father. And we are allowed to listen in as the disciples did. Again, how much importance can we place on a moment like this? And how important would it be as some of his last words to leave with us and the generations that have gone before us and the generations that will come after us? John 17. John 17. 
We'll start in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may also glorify you. In verse 6 now. I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They are yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am in the world no longer, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, those those who you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me I kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, and that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13, and now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they they might have my, my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not pray for you to take them out of the world, but for you to keep them from the evil, or as some other translations say, from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We are not to be of this world as those who belong to Jesus Christ. Just as he was, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Now, he made an important distinction in chapter 17 and verse 15. I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It was never his intention that we be removed from the world. There have been many uh, religious groups who have believed in the removal of themselves from the world, an isolated approach. Christ, no doubt, knew that this might be taken this way and was very clear in this statement that we are not of, but we are in. He never intended that we were physically separated from the world. It is a bit of a paradox when you hear we are not of, but we are in. Paul addresses this same issue. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 5, we'll see another illustration of the same point, just from a slightly different angle. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9. Paul writes and says, I wrote to you in in the letter not to associate intimately with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or with idolaters, for then you must go out of the world. But I have written to you not to associate intimately if any man called a brother is either a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one not to eat. So Paul's comments has actually a humorous twist to it. If you literally apply removing yourself from anyone in these categories, you'd have to leave the planet. So he's making a distinction here, and, he, and it's, 
It's well stated there in verse 10. Yet not altogether with fornicators of this world. It's those of this world that practice those things that we're, we're not going to get away from them. We must work with them. We must interact with them. It's when someone, it's a brother, is living that kind of lifestyle that there is an issue. Another point I want to make. If we are in but not of, there's a reason and a purpose for this. And it is in complete opposition to isolation. If we are in the world but not of the world, there is a reason and a purpose for this. And it is in complete opposition to the idea of isolation. A couple passages that I know you all know well. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. Starting in verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our reason for being in but not of is because God wants us to be visible. He wants his way to be visible. Another passage that you, again, know quite well, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, let's just jump in at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. He wants us to be in but not of for his glorification and that we can be seen. We can't do that if we're isolated. We can't do that from a cloister or a commune. If you're to influence the world, you have to be visible. You have to be noticeably different. And this has been true from God's perspective since he started working with the children of Israel, the nation of Israel. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 4. We'll read a short passage in Deuteronomy 4. We'll break into the thought in verse 5. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of peoples who will hear all of these statutes and say, surely this great nation nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that God, that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. 
God wanted them to be an example to the nations around. He wanted them to be seen. The biblical accounts that we read of Israel and how they lived with this is an example to us today. Each time they borrowed from the people around them, they had devastating results. And each time they chose God over the people around them, there was safety, there was deliverance. They were the example that God wanted them to be, and they brought glory to God. It is God's desire that this world be aware of him and his people, and that there is a positive illustration of what can be. We've been given a gift that we are to share. So just to summarize to this point, at the core or foundational level, we hold a belief that we are not of this world. For the time being, Satan has rule over the world and holds sway over it. While we are not of the world, we are not to isolate and separate ourselves from it. We are to remain in it, obviously different from it. The difference is for Christ's sake, and it is for the purpose of being a light. Now, I'd like to give a couple additional points for good reasons why we do avoid being a part of the world. And I guess you could put as a sub-point to this ways that we can minimize or maximize being an effective example. So first, let me say that I recognize in this room there exists a broad range of individuals sitting here today. First through fifth generations, baptized or not baptized, younger or older, uh, variable upbringing. So why do I mention this? Our exposure to the world can be very different. Uh, I know just in conversations within my own family, we're in the midst of a public school environment and we talk to retired parents and our perspectives of what's going on are different because of that simple fact of where we are immersed, uh, where we work or where we don't have to work. Secondly, we should understand that the pull of the world is a far greater pull for children, for young adults, because it's all new and fresh and that pressure is there. For many who are older, we've determined what we want to do, we've determined our direction, and the pull is less. And I think we would all agree that our children are faced with some tremendous peer pressure. And thirdly, the ability to stand apart from the world can be affected by our experience with the world. If we've dabbled in things prior to our conversion or in our youth, these things can be weak points to us. Um, one stereotypical example would be someone who was, uh, got involved with fraternities and maybe alcoholism in a in a college setting, that may be something that is an issue that they have to be very careful about as they go forward. But regardless of our age, our time in the church, and other factors, we can be affected by the world even subtly and unknowingly. So one of the practical reasons to avoid being a part of the world 
is simply Satan can wear us down. I think a lot of us have heard this passage read before. I'll simply reference it for you. Daniel 7, specifically verse 25. Um, I'll start in verse 24. But it makes an apt comment about how Satan goes after God's people and his effort is as a roaring lion to devour us, to wear us down. Uh, Daniel 7 and verse 24, and the ten horns out of the kingdom of ten kings that shall arise and another shall rise after them and he shall be different from the first and shall humble three kings. And he shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and plot to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hands until a time and times and one half a times. But it's that statement that we've plucked out in, in passages in messages before that he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. It's probably why God gives us the encouragement to endure to the end because he knows that this is Satan's primary objective. As we interact and if we get drawn into aspects of this world, that can be complicated and made much more difficult. And the effects of long-term hardships that come from involvement in the ways of this world and then the sins that can so easily uh, grab a hold of us is to wear us down. Um, for many, and I see this certainly with the generations that I've taught, and I, I hear, I keep in touch with students who are now parents and see their kids and see the decisions that they made and the effect that it's had on them. And for many, it can truly harden people. It can beat them up and harden them and, and take away that innocence and that gentleness and so on, just from children that we, we would like to retain. The, freshman, the freshness and the resilience is gone. As one who works with young people, it's a joy to see young idealistic students and hear about their goals and how they want to go out and make the world a better place. Um, not everyone has a wonderful childhood, uh, but many are looking, even if they've had a difficult one, they want to go and make things better. Uh, it gives me some grief to see the decisions that some of them made. And any of you that have, have attended a class reunion have probably heard and seen results from classmates who've chosen uh, destructive paths. You know, the beautiful thing about God's way of life is that there is healing. There is forgiveness. We can turn. There is hope. There is a choice. There is resolution. Life's hardships are not unique to us. Uh, they're, shared, they're shared experiences. But again, they don't have to wear us down. They don't have to beat us down. One of the things that's sad to me to watch and I've observed as a result of some of the things that I've just mentioned is simply a loss of innocence. And this world is truly an enemy of innocence. Uh, I found it interesting to observe because there's a general disdain in our world for innocence. Uh, you're if you are perceived as innocence, at minimum, you're not thought highly of. Um, it may be used against you. You'll probably be mocked for it. 
and you'll certainly be coerced to cross over to the other side. Peer pressure is very strong, high school, college. Um, it's interesting to me that once they cross over, as these individuals get older, there's a longing to return to innocence. They regret giving that up, but once it's gone, it's hard to regain. We are to be a people without guile, a people described as tender, compassionate, kind, and gentle. And we can go on with the fruits of the Spirit. We've seen today that we are not supposed to be of the world. We live in the world, but we are not of the world for the reasons that we covered earlier. I'd like to end with a passage that I think is a beautiful counterpoint to the list that I gave you when I started the message. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8. 1 Peter 3 and verse 8. And finally, all be of one mind, having compassion on one another, loving the brothers, tender-hearted, friendly. Never give back evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, give blessing, knowing that you are called to do this so that you might inherit blessing. For he that wants to love life and to see good days, let him restrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn aside from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord's face is against those who do evil.